Pashas Balak, of course, is the story of Balak, king of Moab, maybe king of... Uh, he, he was acting in cooperation with Ammon, as the Haftarah indicates, but it, it, was, it was some kind of uh, attempt by the nations of that part of the world to thwart the, the inexorable you know, marching on of the Jewish people. They, they thought they were in danger of being, uh, Pasek says, fairly evocatively, that they were afraid that they were going to uh, that they were going to uh, over 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 that they were, they were going to overrun their countries. The, the language of the pasuk is language of the pasuk is they said they, they were scared because the nation of the Jews were were a multitude. It's called They will lick up. They will just devour the entire surrounding area. I'm reading from my extended handouts over here. Not everything is in the is in the printed out handouts. But the Balak Mansipar was the king of Moab, and they, they were afraid of the Jewish people. He hired Bilam to curse to curse the Jews, to to stunt them, to to cripple them. Didn't work, of course. Hashem transformed Bilam's curses into some of the most beautiful and you know, loving poetry that, uh, that we have in Tanakh, and it was uh, it ended well for the Jews, not so well for. That's an, it, Bullock was disappointed. Then, then unfortunately, then we have the story of the daughters of Moab, daughters of Midian, where the Jews sinned and bad things happened to them. So I, I always found the character of Bullock to be a very kind of morally ambiguous, very intriguing character. Bilam comes across as more of a straight up blackguard. Bilam just is either a mercenary at best or a uh, malevolent uh, anti-Semite at worst, wants to curse the Jews, doesn't he, he, he's a gun for hire at best, again, doesn't have much in the way of redeeming qualities. But Bullock is a very interesting character. Bullock is, is not motivated by any, uh, any enmity toward the Jews. Bullock is the king of a people. He stands in, he stands in the path of the Jews. The Jews have been on a... Uh, have, have been sowing devastation as they go. They've wiped out uh, Sichon and Og, who are the, the neighboring countries who were thought to be powerful and invincible, and, and the Jews are marching on. And Bullock and his people are terrified, and they... I've always had a certain sympathy or understanding of, of, of what Bullock was doing here. Obviously, Hashem protected the Jewish people, but the, how, how do we view Bullock? How do we view his act to, uh, to preemptively strike at the Jews? And he failed ultimately, but how do we view his act from the perspective of the Torah? Um, so, you know, Hashem told Moshe, don't mess with, with Moab because I'm not going to give you any of their land. But are we assuming that Bullock didn't know that? Yeah, we'll, we'll discuss that in, in detail. We'll, we'll discuss several perspectives on that in, in a moment. That, that's the next point of discussion. So how do we view Bullock's, uh, Bullock's conduct here? So the truth is, we, this is something that's discussed by a number of Midrashim and Rishonim, and as Lewis was just pointing out, uh, this has to be understood in, in light of the Jews were not actually going to do to Moab what they did to Sichon and Og. The, the Torah says in Parshas Dvarim uh, the, uh, that uh, Moshe relates, that Hashem had told me, al tatsaras Moab, al tiskar ba do not wage war against Moab, I will not give you their land as an inheritance. It's, that's reserved for Lot, for, the, for Moab, not for you. Later, when it comes to Ammon, a few seconds later in Dvarim, it says, Again, it says, don't wage war against him. Again, do not wage war against Ammon. So the question is, right, the question is, did Balak know about this? If so, what was he worried about? So we find several we find several different approaches in the psukim and in, in the midrashim and in the rishonim, and that uh, and that has an impact on how we again on how we view Balak. What exactly was he worried about? 
So Rashi, Rashi over there on, on those Psukim, Rashi says, Rashi brings from Chazal, from Gemara and Babakama, that the prohibitions against Moab and Ammon, against waging war against Moab and Ammon, were phrased slightly differently. That when it says Moab, it says Al Tiskar Bam the prohibition is limited to war. Don't, don't engage in full blown, all out war. But they were allowed to, to raid and to have, to, they were Sholulim Ubozazimosim, they were able to, to raid and harry them and so on. So they, they so 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 Moab was indeed harassed and actually actually looted and plundered by the Jews. But Ammon it says Al Tiskarbam, do not do not engage them at all. Leave them alone. Don't lift a finger against them. Ammon was was completely uh, secure from Yisrael. The Gemara says this was based on a an ancient distinction in the conduct of their two ancestors of. Uh, of the, the two daughters of Lot, that one of them exhibited more tzniyus and more refinement in her conduct, even, 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 what, even the thing that they did, one of them behaved a little better than the other, and this b'schus of that, they, she got, uh, in b'schus of that, Ammon got slightly better treatment from the Jews, but the point is, the lahalacha, the, the Rashi brings from Chazal, from the Gemara, Moab was able to be, uh, the Jews were allowed to engage in some type of military actions against Moab, just not all out war, we know this from the 20th century. There are all kinds of uh, gradations between you know, war and peace. There are all kinds of intermediate levels of uh, low-grade actions, which are not you know, short of full-blown, full-blown war. So Rashi, again, in, in the same vein, Rashi says that the Rashi also says that that was why the Moab, to a certain extent, was not at fault because they were genuinely afraid. They would genuinely have the right to be afraid. They were they were reasonably afraid of the Jewish people. Rashi makes this comment on Parshas Pinchas, on next week's Parshas. Hashem commands, You shall retaliate against the Midianim, you shall be their enemy, you shall wage war and destroy them. Why? Because of the terrible things they did with the daughters of Midian and so on. What happened to Moab? So why shouldn't you wage war against Moab? The Jews never, never fought against Moab, so why not? So Rashi says, I'm not sure where Rashi sources for this, but Rashi says, because, again, the heart of the matter, the, the Moavim were justifiable. What they did, understandable at least, he doesn't say the word justifiable, he says, the Moavim acted out of fear. They were, they were legitimately afraid of what the Jewish people, the Jewish people were actually raiding them and, and harassing them. And because, again, the Torah says, they were forbidden to engage in all-out war, but they were permitted to engage in this lower-grade harassment. And therefore, the Jews were not told to strike against Moab because the Moabim had a, had a right to be upset at the Jewish people. And, and, and therefore, a, a right, but at least understandable, it wasn't as egregious as Midian. Midian was Nisabral, Rivlo, Lahem. Midian was in no danger of war. Midian was not in the path of the Jewish people. Midian was not uh, in any kind of real danger. And therefore, the Midian, the Midian's conduct was unforgivable. Rashi brings another shot based on the Gemara that, uh, that the Moab was spared because there were two great righteous women who were going to descend of Moab, one from Ammon, one from Moab, Rus from Moab, and Nama, Shlomo HaMelech's wife from, from Ammon. But the first shot is, Rashi says, linked to what he says in Dvarim, is that the Jews were not totally forbidden to wage war against Moab. They, they, they were allowed to, to harass them in some ways, and Moab therefore was understandably afraid. And we actually find that, therefore, the moral uh, objections to Moab's conduct were less, maybe not totally excusable, but at least less, substantially less, than Midian. We understand, to some extent, what, uh, the way Moab behaved over here. In the Tanchuma, in the Midrash Tanchuma in our parsha, it says that the Midrash has 
several perspectives on Balak. At some point, at one point, it calls him a Russia. Talks about how he was so malevolent, how he wanted to destroy the Jews. But later in the midrash, it, it, it again, it, it, the midrash does really attempt to see things from Balak's perspective. It says Balak saw what happened to Sichon and Og. Balak had, according to the midrash, Balak had actually paid a kind of Balak had been paying uh, tribute, paying protection money to Sichon and Og for them to protect him from enemies, and uh, he was a kind of vassal of theirs. And he, he was really afraid. He saw the nisim that Akash Baruch Hu did, uh, according to the Midrash, all kinds of nisim at Nachal Arnon, and Moab was really afraid. So further, the Midrash says, again, this is the same distinction, that Al-Tiskar Ba'am you can't have any Muhammad, no, but you can have uh, other types of uh, plundering and, and harassment and so on. So it explains how, how Moab looked at this whole thing. It explains what, what Moab thought was going on. And getting back to Lewis's point again, so what was Moab worried about? Didn't they have the prohibition, the security of the prohibition? So Midrash says something very interesting. It says that Moab, that the, that the Jews, in the end of Parshas Chukas, the Jews had taken the, the territory of Sichon and Og. Some of that was Moavi territory. Some of that was territory that the, the, the Midrash relates, the, the, the Pasuk relates the whole political and uh, national histories of that region, that the, the, those territories had earlier belonged to Moab. They had been captured by Sichon, and now the Jews took the territory from Sichon. So the Jews had taken territory that had earlier, years earlier, apparently, had belonged to Moab. The Gemara says, we've discussed this in previous years, the Gemara says, from a legal halachic perspective, that was fine, because once it was captured by Sichon, it was fair game. It was no longer Moabite territory, now it was Sichon territory, and the prohibition against waging war against Moab didn't apply. But Moab didn't quite understand that uh, lumdish, that halachic distinction, Moab, Moab saw that the Jews were swallowing up Moabite territory, the, the Sichon Moabite territory that they had taken, and they saw Roamus Artsam Biyad Yisrael, they saw the Jews were in possession of their territory. They said, Akash Baruch Hu said, didn't Akash Baruch Hu say, I'm not going to do that? And they're not listening, they're doing it anyway. The way the article brings this midrash, the, they, they would say, I guess the Jews are not listening, I guess the, Hashem said it, but I guess, I guess the Jews are doing what they want. They're out of control, they're, they're, the Jews are just conquering anyway. So they were afraid. So, the, so again, another perspective on why, on, on why Moab was afraid, despite the fact that the Torah said, Tiskar because they thought that they, they, they had the evidence of their own eyes. They saw whatever the Torah may have, may have told, uh, whatever Hashem may have told the Jewish people, the, the fact of the matter was the Jews were conquering and seizing territory, and, uh, and, 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 and they had, they, they had uh, very good reason. They didn't understand the distinction between Amon and Moab, Tiru and They thought that the... They thought that the, the Jews were ignoring, were, were not, not paying any attention to that prohibition. And therefore, they had, once again, they were, afraid, they were afraid of what the Jews were going to do to them. The Ramban, the Ramban takes a slightly different approach. The Ramban, in his commentary to these Tukim, says that, again, he, they all seem to be assuming Moab knew the general prohibition about the Jews uh, were not supposed to wage war against Moab. Again, why they all assume that way, I don't know. I mean, maybe they simply didn't know. Yeah, how do they know what Hashem had told the Jews? I don't know, but they all seem to be assuming Moab knew more or less what Hashem had said. But the Ramban says, so Moab understood they weren't actually in, da- in existential danger of having the Jews simply, uh, simply conquer their territory and, see- and, and seize and annex uh, the whole territory to, to Israel. That wasn't what they were worried about. But uh, the Ramban explains why. The, re- the Ramban explains that the reason he assumes this is because, again, much of the narrative here that the Torah is not clear, but it fills in more details in Invarim and in the, in, the, in, the, in the repeats of the, in the repetition of the narrative in Varim. 
So it says that the, it says about Moab that when the Jews reached the territory of Moab, they sent emissaries to Moab to treat with them to negotiate uh, passage through, and uh, and 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 he, he said that's one trad. He says that that, that well, the Jews had negotiated with Moab, so they understood the Jews were not planning on invading. And also, he says maybe they did hear the pasuk of Al Tartaris Moab. So he says so. The, he suggests Moab. He also assumes that Moab was not in was not existentially afraid of losing their whole country. However, he says that that's why they, they use this, this somewhat uh, odd language of, I tell you, they'll lick up, they'll the, the, the surroundings. They didn't just say, they'll knock us off. He said, because they knew they weren't, they weren't going to have the, the basic ground under their feet taken from them. But they were worried about they would take the surrounding areas, the resources, the Kilchachashar's Yarakasada. They would take all the surrounding territories like they did to the Amori, and they would, uh, maybe they'll subjugate us, they'll make us into a vassal, they, they won't totally uh, annex us and, 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 and toss out our government, but maybe they'll subdue us and put pressure on us and make us, and make us into, their, into their vassal. So the, again, they, they weren't worried about out and out. It's similar to what we said originally from, the, from Rashi and the Tanchuma, they weren't necessarily worried about, they weren't necessarily, the Rashi and the Midrash, they weren't necessarily worried about being totally... Uh, Totally conquered, but they were worried about about the pressure, about the other negative effects of the Jews' uh, inexorable advance through their area, and therefore, they, again, that Moab was genuinely concerned with what the Jews were, with what the Jews were going to do to them, and the, so according to all these, according to all these pshatim, even though some of the midrashim do call Balak a Russia, but the, a number of these midrashim and rishonim make a point of saying that we do understand why Moab did what they did. What Moab did wasn't motivated by pure malice and anti-Semitism. It was ultimately motivated by self-preservation, by, by fear, fear of losing what they had. And therefore, we understand what they did. And as we said, according to, according to Rashi, Rashi goes so far as to say that the... I'm not sure where Rashi sources, but Rashi goes so far as to say that that's why they weren't punished. And that's why they, they weren't punished like Midian was punished, because ultimately Hashem understood. Ultimately, the, there, was a certain, uh, there was a certain reasonableness to their position and therefore, they were not punished the way Midian was punished. So this idea that the again, what was Balak doing? He was worried about the Jews were going to attack him, and therefore he decided to preemptively strike. He decided to preemptively launch a not a normal a military attack, but a, an attack via Bilam, via Bilam and his uh, malevolent uh, mystic powers. What he essentially was doing, to use modern terminology, he was essentially attempting to launch a preemptive strike against the Jews in, in a kind of preemptive self-defense. Let me you know, cripple and uh, strike a blow against the, the nation of, of Israel so that they will veer off and, and not bother me anymore. This, this is something that I always found very interesting. A lot of contemporary thought about this. This is the notion of self-defense extended to preemptive self-defense. In classic halacha, we have, of course, the notion of self-defense. We, you can use lethal force against, an, against someone who is posing a lethal threat. That is the din of rodef. If someone is rodef, if a pursuer is pursuing someone else with lethal intent, so the, 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 the pursued, the, the, the potential victim, has the right to use lethal force. Indeed, any third party has the right and even the duty to use lethal force, if necessary, to, to repel the attacker. You're supposed to use non-lethal force if possible, but if not possible, we have the right, to, the right and the duty to use lethal force. That is, of course, the din of Rodif, or as the Gemara calls it in some places, Habal Hashkem Hashkem If someone is coming to kill you, 
we don't believe in you know, quietism and pacifism. We believe that it's your right and your duty to fight back if necessary. As a last resort, of course, you should use non-lethal force if possible. There is actually a machlokis, whether the, the victim himself is obligated to use non-lethal force or only third parties are required to use non-lethal force. But certainly there, there is a right of, uh, people have a right to stop a rodef, to stop a, an aggressor by using lethal force. And of course, in modern law as well, the self-defense in the modern, you know, the UN Charter, the one, the one legal, the one acceptable uh, on, a na- on the nation-state level, on the on the relation in, in the in the sphere of the relations between states, the one legitimate uh, legitimate justification for war is self-defense, which is the idea of rodef magnified and expanded to operate on a nation-state level. The question, of course, is both with regard to the question that, 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 that I'm dealing with here, that I want to discuss here a little bit, is both on the individual level as well as on the, the nation-state level. How do we deal? Can we expand Rodef to encompass some kind of preemptive self-defense? This is a doctrine that got a lot of attention in the U.S. after September 11th with worries about terrorism, with worries about asymmetrical warfare as the, the tools of inflicting vast amounts of harm became more accessible to non-state actors who who weren't easily deterrable and weren't easily traceable or accountable always. So the United States government, the rest of the world, particularly the U.S. government, began to grapple under under George Bush, began to grapple with this question of how far can we stretch the notion of self-defense to encompass some kind of notion of preemptive self-defense. No one is actively threatening me right now. But if I, if I don't nip some kind of potential threat in the bud, it may strike out at me later. I have reason to believe it will. So it's preemptive self-defense. Is that included in the UN Charter of Legitimate Reason for War? From a halakhic perspective, is that, is that included in, in self-defense? So the National Security Council under Bush in 2002, after September 11th, before the Iraq War, they, they argued strongly, Bush's people, the conservatives in, the, in, that, in that political wing, argued that self-defense should be interpreted broadly and should sometimes be, uh, be, be expanded to include uh, preemptive self-defense. And they argued for centuries, international law recognized that nations need not suffer an attack before they can lawfully take action. Legal scholars, international jurists, they, they allowed preemption if there's an imminent threat in, 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 in in, in the times of old, where, where, where the world was simpler, that, that typically meant a kind of concrete symbol of imminent threat, like a visible mobilization of armies, navies, and air forces. Today, they said, with, until we, have to, we have to adapt that to, the, to terrorism, to rogue states and terrorism. They have uh, weapons of mass destruction, which can be easily concealed, delivered covertly, used without warning. Therefore, the, 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 the conservatives were arguing, the, 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 the muscular conservatives were arguing that we need to have an expanded notion of uh, preemptive self-defense, which is a very real notion of self-defense. They're not attacking us right now, but if we don't do something about it, we, we have reason to believe that they will in the future. And they therefore argued that was obviously the a big part of the basis of the justification for the Iraq War, the belief at least, uh, which turned out to have been somewhat misguided, but the belief that there were weapons of mass destruction in the hands of a uh, homicidal uh, amoral tyrant, uh, which might eventually be turned on the U.S. or other innocent people. So, so the question is, what does the Torah have to say about this notion of preemptive self-defense? As Jews, uh, we, we, of course, one of, one, of that, one of the classic examples in modern history would be something, would be the, the Six-Day War. I, I'm not 
expert in the history of that, but my, my limited understanding is that that was Israel struck first because they had reason to believe that Arab armies were massing and preparing uh, an imminent attack, so they struck first and took out you know, whole air forces on the, on, on the runways and so on. They, uh, you know, the Arabs complained about it, but our understanding was that they were mobilizing and they had fought wars before and they would fight wars again, and we had, we had good reason to believe that there was an attack uh, imminent. So the question is, these types of, the the question is, these types of wars, which is essentially what Balak was doing. The the Jews, there are different versions of the Midrash. According to some versions, the the Jews had already been harassing him, had already been uh, marauding and pillaging, doing things short of outright war. According to some versions, he was just afraid, afraid that they would uh, proceed to ignore the Torah's commandment or that they would proceed to do things. The question is, uh, particularly uh, on those approaches, that, uh, that the Jews hadn't done anything yet against Balak, but that they were afraid the Jews would. So I said, how do we view this again? How do we view this from the Torah perspective? Does it, can the law of Rodev, of, the, of, of self-defense, on a personal or national level, can it be stretched and bent far enough to encompass even these types of preemp- preemption, as the conservatives argued in the early part of the, in the, early part of the 20th century? So, quote another couple of examples from the Torah about this type of preemptive self-defense. So there's one that actually enters, that actually comes in in the beginning of next week's Pasha. Beginning of next week's Pasha, after we have the terrible story of the Baal Pa'ar and the women of Midian, so it says that, uh, the Torah refers both to the women of Midian and the women of Moab. It says, because we've got, it, it talks about the Midianite princess, but there were also, uh, there were also Benos Moab involved. So Hashem commands Moshe, you shall smite the Midianim because of what they did to you and that they're your enemies. So, so we already mentioned earlier, we mentioned one approach, why Midian and not Moab. So we said two approaches, either because Moab had merit because righteous women were still going to emerge from Moab or because Moab acted in self-defense, but focusing on Midian, when God said, smite Midian, strike Midian, wage war against Midian, so the Pasuk says, what shall you do? Your enemies, because of what they did regarding uh, maliciously enticing you toward Balpar, and also because of the matter of Cosby, Baldvar, Cosby Bastur, uh, who was who was struck down on the day of the of the Magefa. So some Rishonim, some Midrashim, some Rishonim understand this was not about punishment, or not necessarily not exclusively about punishment. Some 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 of the commentaries understand that the issue that the point Hashem was making was at this point it's it's it, it's you or them, it's you or the Midianites. This is something that is not forgivable on their part. Once you killed Cosby, they they they're going to attack, they're going to fight back. They they are going to wage war against you. It's, 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 it's going to come down to either the Jews or the Midianites. So you, you might as well strike first because this is, this is not something that's repairable. The, the, this is permanent enmity between you and Midian, and therefore you had better strike first because they are going to strike you one way or another. This idea is expressed by Ibn Ezra and Ralbag. Ibn Ezra says, Valdvar Cosby, when the Pasuk says, strike them because of Cosby, he says it means, ki yachshivu lasus ra. They will intend you harm. They will plan. They intend and plan to harm you. But for Kuzbi they will not accept the. They, they will not take the death of their princess without, without retaliation. And therefore, you can expect it's a sure thing. They will retaliate. 
and therefore you should strike first. Again, a kind of preemptive self-defense. They are going to uh, do something to you, so don't, don't wait until it happens. You, you should strike first. You should hit back and strike them first. Ralbag also de- develops this idea that Ralbag says that, first of all, what Midian has done to you in the past, and further, we have revenge, we have a need for vengeance uh, against that. But furthermore, he says that they hate you because well, you, you killed Cosby. She was a princess. And the Rabbag says, it is clear, it is self-evident, that if you don't, uh, if you don't swiftly strike them, in then they will take other steps to harm you, that they'll find some way of, uh, of hurting you. So Midian itself, according to these, these Rishonim, was really a battle, at least in part, of preemptive self-defense. You can assume that there's a, enough of a casus belly here that they are going to strike. And once, once they're going to strike, even though they haven't done it yet, they, they haven't done anything warlike yet, as far as anyone knew, but it's a matter of time. They're going to attack, and therefore you might as well be the one to attack first. You don't have to wait till you're attacked to fight back. If you know what's happening, you, 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 you make the first move. You strike, and you strike against Midian. But of course, they're put in this position because of Pinchas. Tachas Asher by Chaperes Bnei Israel. He's praised for this act of zealotry, which isn't, um, and he's not following, you know, anything about Farhesia and Adim and all that. He's bypassing all of that. So he's putting them in this vulnerable position by by killing Cosby. He's being praised for it. Right. So right, there is kind of what we call it's a loaded term. There is kind of what we call the cycle of violence here. The, the, the Midianites started with their uh, malicious attempt to seduce the Jews to, to idol worship and immorality. Pinchas struck back by his, as you said, highly highly praised act of, of zealotry where he killed the, the Midianite. And then the, the Midianite, the, it was only a matter of time before Midian was then going to take the next step of fighting back. And therefore the Jews, right, they're, they're ultimately there, there are a series of... Uh, a series of, of, of chains of, of, of cause and effect there. Right, and ultimately the, the Midianites started this quarrel because they were the ones who sent their women to cause trouble. But yeah, so this is very much not the first part of the story, but at this point in the story, at this point in the story, assuming that, like you said, as you said, Pinchas, what Pinchas had done was, was justified. And, uh, and at this point, it, it was a matter of time before the Jews struck, before the Midianites struck back. So at this point, it was already a question of self-preservation. Right, but obviously this is not the beginning of the, of the whole story here. The, and the truth is, this idea is already, already really appears in Midrash Tanchum also, in Parashas Perchas. The, the Midrash says something very interesting. In, in the Bavli, when we talk about the, the principle we mentioned earlier, that a rodef is nitein latzilo benafsho, that it's permitted to, to terminate a rodef with lethal force, or that hababa machteres, if someone is tunneling, housebreaking, someone is uh, digging into someone's house, and the homeowner encounters him, he can attack him, even kill him, because we assume that the, that the home invader is, is prepared to kill the homeowner if he encounters him, and therefore the homeowner can, may consider himself in mortal danger from the invader, and therefore he has the right to use lethal force to, uh, to neutralize the, 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 the invader, the, the Bab Makhteris. So the sources for those two are usually, the, the, the Bavli brings two sources for this principle, one in Parashat Mishpatim, it's not explicit in the Psukim, but uh, um, actually it's pretty explicit, it says, if the, if, the, if the Ganav, the thief, is found in Makhteres and he's struck and he's killed, then there's no, that, that's not murder because, and the Bavli understands that's a right of self-defense, 
Similarly, it says the it says that uh, the, regarding a, a man who's chasing a woman to rape her. So the so the, it says the the, the so can make an analogy to to murder that the woman is, woman is not at fault. It's just like a murder victim, we don't blame the victim. We don't blame the victim of sexual assault. It should be obvious, but it was not always obvious then, and it's not always obvious today. So it's, uh, Torah tells us, warns us not to blame the victim, but in the course of those circum, the Imar Darshans also, that, uh, that murder is nitin latilo benafsho, and so too, so too, we, we can, to prevent a murder, we can use lethal force to prevent uh, a rape in certain contexts of... Uh, we can use lethal force to prevent it. So the Gemara does have these various sources for the law of Rodif, but the Tanchuma actually derives, some of the, some of the Rishonim on the Bavli bring this Tanchuma, the Tanchuma actually derives the law of Habal Hargacha Hashkem Lahargo from the story of the Medjanim. He says, he says that the Torah and Medjanim, you shall make enemies of the Medjanim, Lama, Kitzorim Hem Lachem, because they are your enemies, Mikan Amar Zal, in Balahargacha, Hashkem Lahargo. Midrash is not very clear. It sounds like the, the Midyanim had already done their, their dastardly act, but the Midrash seems to understand, and this is how I think some of the Mepharshim of the Midrash understand it, that the Midyanim are, whatever they're doing is ongoing, whether because of revenge for Cosby or whether just whatever they did yesterday, the, that, that's their plan of attack. They're going to continue doing it today. So what the Midyanim are doing is, uh, is they pose a threat, even if they're not doing anything right now, but they pose an, they pose a, an ongoing threat. And therefore, attack them. Attack them because they are, because they're, because you are in danger of being attacked from them, and you therefore should attack them first. The again, whether it's because of the spiritual harm, the, the midrash goes on and talks about one who causes someone to sin is actually worse than someone who actually kills him, because harig is only in this world, and making somebody sin causes him to forfeit the next world. But the midrash already says that the Jewish war against Midian. Was was is properly viewed as a war of self-defense, and at least as understood by Ben Ezra and Rabbag, it was essentially a form of preemptive self-defense. That there was a uh, there was a concern that if they don't strike against the Midianim today, the Midianim would do something to them in the future, and therefore this was included in a broad in a broad sense of uh, in a very broad sense of self-defense. There's also Aral Bag who introduces the notion, a very expanded notion of self-defense. Now, not clear how, how rigorously halachic he means this, but there's also Aral Bag who introduces a, a very broad notion of preemptive self-defense in the story of Shechem. Back in Parshas Vayishlach, we've discussed this a number of times in the past, in the story of Parshas Vayishlach, so first uh, Shechem seizes Dina and uh, assaults Dina, kidnaps and rapes Dina, then Shimon and Levi plot this bloody revenge where they persuade them to do brismila, and then when they're weak, they all uh, they attack them, they massacre the entire city. So one of the most uh, heavily discussed, difficult moral problems in, in Chumash is how to understand that. Shechem himself deserved, deserved uh, the, what he got, but the rest of the city... They, they exterminated an entire city because of the bad behavior of, uh, of Shechem. So what was that all about? Rambam discusses that. Ramban. There, there, there are numerous approaches to what was, what was the moral basis for the extermination of the entire city. So the Ralbag, Ralbag has, has a very interesting idea. He says that the... The problem was really, really, they really they needed to go after. Really, they wanted to go after Shechem himself. They had no real interest in destroying the whole city. But the problem was 
that, so, so, so some say, or Chaim, I think, says that Shechem was protected by the city. They had to fight their way towards Shechem, which would basically would have involved fighting the city. And, um, it's as it is, they, they took a shortcut, they waited until the city was incapacitated. But anyway, they would have had to go through the city to get to Shechem. But the Rabag goes even further. The Rabag says, had they just killed Shechem, they, they knew that they would have faced vengeance from Hamar, the father of Shechem, and the rest of the city. They weren't going to, just like with Cosby, they weren't going to allow their prince to be struck down and then, done, and then do nothing. They, 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 the rest of the city would have fought back. Hamar would have fought back. So it would have retaliated. So therefore they knew that by killing Shechem, again, just, just like just as Jason said before, that it, the Jews were starting in a certain sense by killing, by killing Shechem, but that was justified. That was a, there was a very good reason for that. So just like with the Jews and Cosby, they killed Cosby for good reason. But once they did that, they knew the consequences of that would be that the whole Midian would, would turn against them and they have to strike first against Midian. So to Harry says, they were justified in killing Shechem because of the heinous crimes he had committed. But they, they, they had the right to punish him and execute him for the crimes he had committed. By doing so, though, they were inevitably going to make enemies of the entire city. The entire city would be expected to retaliate against them, and then they would have to kill him. So again, you don't have to wait till they're actually attacking you. If you know that somebody is going to attack you tomorrow, you can preemptively, the Rolbag says, you can preemptively attack today. So is that something that one should take into account when deciding whether to go after Shem in the first place? I was like, yes, of course he, des- he, he deserves to be killed, but if we kill him, it's going to create this whole cycle of, uh, you know, of, of vengeance and counter-vengeance, and so maybe the better thing is to just let this one Go. So that's an interesting question, that uh, each step kind of follows logically from the step before, but should you take the whole thing into account and starting the cycle of violence, should you say, this is justified, but this will cause them to attack, and it will, it will compel me to fight back, uh, either preemptively or not, and it will result in a lot of people dying who, who, who are not essentially guilty, should I, who are not inherently uh, fundamentally guilty, should I therefore decide that it's, uh, you know, modern law talks about proportionality and so on, should I actually take that into account when deciding whether to kick off this, uh, this cycle of violence? So the truth is, in this particular case, the Rolbag does go on and say, he, he, he mentions the, the ideas of the other Rishan and the Rambam and others who say that they, they were guilty of the people in Shechem because they, they may have actually aided and abetted his crimes, or, or they could have, uh, well, he doesn't say that, but he says, they, they could have protested, they could have objected, or, or they could have judged him after the fact. So in this particular case, he says, you have those other arguments. But putting that aside, putting just the first thing he said, before he gets to Yadam Gamkein Hayabamal Hazeh, in a case where they are you know, basically innocent of the fundamental crime, you know that by, by assassinating the king, by assassinating their prince, they will feel the need to get involved, and you'll have to kill them too. Is that a cheshman? Should you say that even though Shem is... Uh, Shem is a, is a terrible criminal, a terrible, a, a, a terrible sinner. I should let him go because it, it, there, there's no point in exterminating an entire city just in order to get to him. That is an interesting question. That is an interesting question. Um, I would have to think about that. I'd have to think about that further. Right. Modern, you know, in modern war, we talk about even though, let's, even though, let's say, real innocents, those who are not pure civilians, we say that. You know, it, it's, it's sometimes in war it's inevitable, but we do say that you're required to act with some kind of sense of proportionality, that, 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 you, that killing too many civilians for one limited military goal is, again, the devil's in the details, but it's considered not acceptable, so you can raise, I guess, a similar question here. 
how many uh, otherwise innocent people are, are acceptable to get caught up in your, in, in your, in your plan. It's a good question. Yeah, I'd have to think about that further. But the, so this is what the Ralbag says. Again, that, that we have this expanded notion of, of self-defense, even preemptive self-defense, that once you can expect uh, it's only a matter of time before they, before, before, before they attack you, then, then again, then, then you have the right to strike first. And, and you, don't, you don't have to wait till they, and that, 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 that you don't have to wait till they actually, till they actually attack you. The, in general, the, the, the law of Rodef is expanded in some, in some very uh, striking ways by postkin, by, by practical postkin in the medieval period. The, it really goes back to the Talmud. The, the Talmud calls, Talmud calls a, a Moser Rodef, someone who was informing on Jews to, a, to bandits or to a corrupt government, or maybe, well, it's not always clear if the Gemara is talking about a corrupt government or a, or a legitimate government, but, but certainly, at least in the case of a corrupt government, so the, the, that, that's a Moser, and a Moser can be killed preemptively. Why? So the Gemara makes it clear he's a rodent. The, 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 the Moser is going, he's going to get Jews killed, so you can kill him first. So again, the actual threat of the, of the, of the enemy is not imminent. It's, uh, it's, it's not, they haven't started yet. They're arresting him. They're going to try to squeeze him for money. The Rush explains uh, that their rapaciousness will know no bounds. And after they've squeezed all the money they can get out of him, they're going to want more. He's going to say, I have no more. They'll start torturing him to, in the hope that he'll reveal more money. And eventually he will, uh, eventually it may result in his death. So again, it's a fairly, it, 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 it's, what the most is doing is, may end up with a Jew dying, but it's, it's not, you know, he's not actually killing the Jew right now, but that was enough for the Gemara. The Gemara felt that was the, the foreseeability of this, and it's it sufficient for this to be called uh, Rodef. You don't have to wait till the, till the actual sword is swinging toward the person. If, if this is a foreseeable uh, chain of events, that person is called, is, is called a Rodef. Even more so, we find the, the, a, a remarkable ruling. We find that when there was a Jew who was engaged in criminal conduct, counterfeiting is the example that we shouldn't talk about. Like, like back then, counterfeiting still is a crime. Back then, it was a really serious crime. It was a capital offense, and, and they wouldn't always be so make nice discriminations about who was involved. They caught a Jew counterfeiting. They would uh, either just kill any Jews they found, or just assume, they were, assume it was the whole community that was guilty, collective punishment, indiscriminate punishment. Someone who was engaged in something that the government was so, uh, was so opposed to, like counterfeiting, was putting the entire community in danger. So the halacha is, the, the counterfeiter could be turned over to the government. It was basically considered a rodent because his actions were endangering the community. So once again, you know, we, we don't have to wait until the, the danger is actually here, until the until they're actually coming for the whole community to throw them to throw them to them to try to send them off, we say this this activity this this course of conduct by this person is endangering Jewish lives. We we have we have reason to believe that if this goes unchecked, this may result uh, again. He's not doing it intentionally. Certainly, he's not. Uh, he's just trying to make money with by illegal activity. But that that's also a road. If uh, it's efficient, it's efficient for the. For the law of Rodef to say that it's foreseeable, it's uh, we, we 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 can we can map out the chain of events which is going to lead to harm, death, and harm to the Jewish community, and that is enough to be called a Rodef. And therefore, again, you don't have to wait until the person is actually chasing you in hot pursuit with a weapon. It's enough to say that I see some I see a problem happening if this if this is not uh, checked, if this behavior is not checked, and that's enough of a reason to apply the law to apply the law of Rodef.
contemporary poskim as well, when they discuss Israel's activities against terrorists and uh, enemies, contemporary poskim have sometimes tried to fit it into the category of Rodev. They have tried to, uh, you know, to, to apply the rules and parameters of Rodev to Israel's conduct against enemies. Rabbi Yehuda Zeldan, uh, a leading, uh, you know, very prolific writer and thinker on, on applications of halacha to modern society, to, to Israel, he argues it's really a category error. He argues that Rodev is fundamentally a civilian rule. It, it regulates the, the course of action between civilians, private people in danger, nation states, the, when, when nations uh, fight existential battles for the, for the safety and security of the nation. We have entirely different categories of halacha which apply the laws of Muhammad, the laws of war, which perhaps you know, there's some truth to that. On the other hand, as we've seen, certainly if we apply modern law, Nation states also uh, are, are, are bound by a, by a law similar to Rodif. They aren't supposed to be attack, attacking other nations, even though, as we've discussed in the past, Halacha has the notion of Muhammad's Rishus, but we, we generally fight when we think that we're being threatened. We, we generally don't uh, look for dragons to slay. We generally, uh, we generally fight wars when we, when we when, both morally and legally and practically when we think we're in danger. So there are postcom indeed who try to apply the laws of Rodif to, to Israel's Israel's aggressions against its enemies as well, that to try to, to try to fit Israel's conduct, at, at least what we think Israel's conduct should be, into the categories of Rodif. As we've seen, though, that even if we do that, uh, the halacha does have a, a, the halacha, Midrash, as well as halacha, does have a relatively far-reaching notion of Rodif. Rodif is not limited to where somebody is actually chasing you with a weapon right now. Rodif can include uh, a, a somewhat broader notion of preemptive self-defense, and in all these different examples, again, not all these examples were halachic, some of these were midrashim and agada and, and historical, but the, the general idea, we, we, we have these numerous different perspectives, we don't always have to wait until the, the danger has been activated and is uh, actually approaching us. If the danger is foreseeable, if, if, if we, and again, sometimes even if we started it, but if we started in a justified way, as in the case of Cosby, as in the case of Shem, and now we anticipate that the next move will be theirs and they are going to attack us. As we've seen, there are sources which say that that is included in a legitimate, uh, broad, and expanded notion of legitimate self-defense. So this practice of preemptive um, violence against the road, would this just be applicable in terms of a nation-state, in terms of uh, like the existential... Uh, condition of Israel or the, or the United States safety. What about, you know, I'm thinking about all these women who married to wife beaters who, um, who pose a real danger and they've been beaten enough, enough times and severely enough to think their lives are in danger. Um, you know, is that going to be, you know, is, is there a difference between Rodev, um, you know, in a or yeah, that, that, that's a really good question. I, I, I should have thought of that. I should have included that. That's a really good question. There, there, there are many stories we read about women who have been warned repeatedly by those experienced with domestic violence. We know the patterns of abusers. If you don't leave him, you'll end up dead. And, you'll, uh, and we have cases where women have gone to trial for this. Women have just yeah. uh, killed a man. Sometimes they kill him when he's actually beating them. That, that's certainly okay. But there are cases where a woman just feels trapped, and she actually, while he's sleeping, she'll kill him. And, and, and uh, the question is, can she argue that it's only a matter of time before it's going to get, before it will go too far and I'll end up dead? So that, that's a very good question. I, I definitely could see a notion of preemptive self-defense. You know, you know, he's, he's, she's in the hospital a couple of times already, and next time she won't be so lucky. Um, that case is actually complicated by, by one other factor, which, which is a fascinating question as well, which is, 
in some cases, at least, she has the option of leaving. It's complicated why women don't leave. There are all kinds of uh, dynamics why they don't leave, but sometimes they can't leave because he, he, tracks her, he tracks her down and finds her. But in a case where you know, she could leave, just that she has, kind of, she has trouble leaving, she, she's still dependent, that creates a very interesting dynamic. I mean, if, if she can leave, so leave and don't kill him. But right, certainly in a case where leaving is not an option. He's, he's, he's tracked her down before. He's, uh, he's a policeman. He's well-connected. He has, uh, he'll find her if she leaves. And, and he sent her to the hospital twice already or something. I definitely think you can make a very serious... Again, it's a chedosh, and la'alacha, we'd have to look at it more carefully. But right, the, the thrust of our share, both with, I think even with regard to an individual as well, I think you could make a case. It's certainly a novel, and it's certainly a, 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 it's certainly a bold claim. But I think you definitely could construct a case that that could be included in a broader understanding of self-defense. Yes? Uh, 